Blockchain Advisor is the go-to podcast that bridges the gap between traditional investing and digital assets. The podcast covers a wide range of topics, including stocks, bonds, and commodities, the cryptocurrencies listed on Coinbase, and the Grayscale Investment Trusts. We're going to help you build an elegant portfolio of digital assets from the perspective of an options market maker and registered investment advisor. My name is Bill Uliveri, and I'm the Blockchain Advisor. All right, let's go ahead. Larry Berlin, thank you so much for accepting my invitation to be on the, uh, the, the Blockchain Advisor podcast. And while again, while basically the, the focus of this podcast is cryptocurrencies and blockchain, really, let's go back to the foundation. Let's go back to the beginning of stocks, options, and uh, our experiences that we shared uh, at the Chicago Board Options Exchange. I really want to capture again this period in history. So Larry, tell me, like, how did you get started? What brought you to the CBOE? Who backed you? Uh, what pits did you trade in? Um, you know, the, the thing with being a floor trader is that while I didn't, I know, I know who you are. I remember you from the floor, but I didn't, I didn't, you weren't like a friend, right? We didn't, probably didn't trade with no, each didn't. other, but we shared a common experience of, you know, the bull market from 84 on or the 87 crash. And it's like being in the army with somebody like you don't have to serve at the same time, but there's like this instant connection. So let's let's talk about that and just give me some background. There is. OK, I'm happy to. Actually, I began as a clerk on the floor in 1977 when I was 16 years old. You do the math and figure out how old I am now. And um, I had taken a class. I'd heard about options from a stockbroker who was at Merrill Lynch, who was my grandpa's stockbroker. My grandpa was a pharmacist, not some rich guy. And I thought it would be fun to learn. So I took a class at New Trier East High School in their night program on options. Was that with and Randall Shackner? No, his name was Phil Surwich. <laughs> and I ran into him about five years ago on the sailing beach in Wombat. And so I took your class. And, and then I thought it would be fun to get a job and see what it's like to clerk. And I didn't know what it was. I didn't know anything about it. And my dad happened to be friends with Irving Harris who, you know, had the Harris um, Associates, he's the Harris, the Harris Pavilion in Grand Park is him. The wow. Irving Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago is him. And Irving hired me to work for him that summer. And half my job was actually in his office writing earnings paper, earnings reports down on sheets of paper and grids. So his investment committee could go through it. No computers. Oh my God. And the other half was he had an ex employee named Dan Curran, who was DSC and then DAN. And Dan traded in Teledyne and National Semiconductor. And Dan liked to put spreads on around the floor using his little Monchuk Weber machine yep. at first options that we used. And I helped manage that. We had about $100,000 to invest. And over the course of the summer, we made $30,000. <laughs> That's insane. And and I got 5%, which helped pay for part of the University of Chicago for about a week. <laughs> right. And it went from there. I kept working on the floor. I worked for Dan for two years. I worked for Chris Phillips in the Teledyne pit. Oh, yeah. Chris Phillips. Yeah. Chris I went was to, great. I went to his that Halloween party. Yes. My wife, and that was one of our first dates, me and my wife. We went to the Chris Phillips. It was like a music video, some dark warehouse, like in the West Randolph food district. It was so scary. Um, but go ahead. I'm with you. I was there. I probably ran into you there. Yeah. <laughs> and Chris was great. And I worked for Chris for a long time and through college. 
and put spreads on and things like that around the floor for him, which I could watch while I was at college. Although without cell phones and without computers, it was a little harder than it is today. And then he had a guy who worked for him, Benny Gambino, and BNO, who traded Kodak. And Benny hired me to come work with him for Herb Norman, who Herb was, a, he was noticed this. I won't even say that. <laughs> he had a couple of derogatory names about him. I'll leave it at that. Okay. But Herb traded in like telephone. And then he had a bunch of market makers on the floor and they needed a clerk to come help them out. So I helped out him and I helped out Brian Wolf and Billy Johnson, BMW and SHO uh-huh. and other people on the floor. And then they put me on the seat and I worked with Benny on the seat. Um, and then I put other people on seats with Ben. And I stayed on the floor with interruption until 1994 when I had my MBA mm-hmm. and left. I traded mostly Sears. I clerked to Kodak. I clerked, you know, with Ben. But I traded mostly Sears and Dow, and then I traded OEX. And mm-hmm. I predominantly traded OEX through my career. Wow. Where, so where did you stand when you were in the OEX bit? On the back porch where Stafford was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so he was my first clerk. So, so yeah, so Stafford hired. So I was my first job was as a book clerk at the CBOE in Ford, Sperry and Kermagee. And then I met John Stafford, who hired me as his very first clerk in 1981 uh, wow. in the IBM pit. And, you know, he just moved from Boston over to Chicago. But but go ahead. I want to hear more about. So when did you step into the OEX pit? What year was um, that? We were on the old trading floor when I first started trading which was January of 84, I believe, mm-hmm. 83, no, 84, 84, January of 84. And we're still on the old floor. We still have about eight weeks left on the old floor on the eighth floor of the CBO of the board of trade building. Yeah. And I traded in the OEX on that old pit. And then I moved over to the new pit and had to figure out where to stand. And uh-huh. I picked the back side by what became the platform. Yeah. And then um, Billy Johnson left um, Norman and company. So I took over Sears for about three months and then I went back to the OEX pit. Sure. <laughs> yeah. The Sears pit, um, the Sears pit was a definite, I don't want to say it's a boys club. All right. I'm not going to say that, oh, but, it was. but, but, you know, I was a bit of a boat person. In other words, I used to go from pit to pit to pit, you know, just wherever there was activity. So I yeah. would, I would go over to the Sears pit once in a while. And it, of course, like everything, it's hard to break in. You guys don't want the floaters coming in. You do everything you can to intimidate them, to get them out of the area. And we would compensate by tightening the markets, which only pissed you guys off, rightfully so. But, uh, but I, I pretty much planted my feet in the OEX pit in April of 1980. See, I started trading in June or August of 82. I probably was in the OEX pit about a year after, like right after it opened, when it was on the old trading floor on seven and a half. In the middle between IBM and- <laughs> Yeah, 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 very, very cool. So how would, cool. You, how would you describe your style of trade? Were you a theoretical trader using a Manchek Weber and Black Scholes model, or did you do arbitrage, butterflies? I was much more of a theoretical trader than anything else. I would carry a position of say two to three thousand options at a given time. So I wasn't huge; I was really small, and my haircuts would run say a hundred thousand at that point. Mm-hmm. I like to go admittedly from the short side of options because options decay with every passing moment. Yeah. So I would generally be t- short. Um, um, Delta, I'd uh, be neutral delta wise and short gamma. And and then I would day trade within, you know, because at some point Smith Barney would come in, say buy 10 calls 
at three and an eighth. I'd sell them 10 and hope I could buy them back at three bucks. Right. It's like every other day trader near me. We had, um, they were derisively referred to as team Xerox near me because they all copied each other. <laughs> and <laughs> John Stafford labeled them that. Uh-huh. And they were all scalpers and they would stand there all day and they would make, you know, a few hundred bucks a day, basically paying three bucks, selling it at three and an eighth and doing it 20 at a time. All day long. And um, you would do that. But other times people would come in and I would trade the out months. Those guys would only trade the nearest expiration month, which would be March right now. I would trade the April, May, and Junes, put them in positions. And I did not do standard and poor's 500s against them. So I would just trade other options in the same pit against them, mm-hmm. try and be delta neutral and take the gamma position I wanted. So for having two or 3,000 options on, do you remember like what your daily positive theta, your daily decay was? I mean, do you remember those numbers? Like you were making 500 bucks a day or 1,000 bucks a day, well, theoretically? We kid around. If I had woken up every day and gone to the Cub game and not showed up in the pit to mess myself up, <laughs> And there's a story there, but um, um, we would, um, you know, I think I would make about 500 bucks, 800 bucks a day, okay. maybe sometimes a thousand, depending on what I had. Um, but of course that wouldn't happen because the market would move and being human, I would overreact sure. and I would give up some of my profits, um, trying not to be Delta wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me ask you this question. So back in the early eighties, I mean, I probably didn't even know what a sheet reader was per se until I met like CRT in 85, 86-ish, okay? So the concept of, like you can't understand what it means to be short gamma until you just take it on the chin. Like it's all conceptual. It really is theoretical trading because you don't know what it's like until you're short gamma and all of a sudden you've got this huge position on like, oh my God, where did this come from, right? Did you, how did you, how did you manage and trade? Like, who did someone mentor you to say, "Hey, when the the square root of time divided by volatility times stock price equals this, that's when you cover"? Or was it just you just you until you had your first five figure losing twenty minutes? <laughs> uh, did you say, "Holy shit, did I? This is what short gamma means." Hey, short, um, I had a couple things. First of all, believe not, Chris Phillips helped a lot. Mm-hmm. And Chris had a lot of people who worked with him. Mark Koss comes to mind as one of them. Um, Harris Suzuki comes to mind as another. And they yeah. all trade different bits. And they taught me a lot. But we shared an office. We were at Equity Securities. And the founder of Equity Securities was Paul McGuire. Paul McGuire was one of the founders of the CBOE. He was chairman of the Board of Trade. Mm-hmm. And every day from 3.30 on, Paul would sit and teach us. Wow. And... He was just a spectacular person to know and work with. And then we would play chess with him. He would beat us. But <laughs> he taught me a lot of it. And then at that time in the early 80s, we were looking at interest rates were 18%. Right. So we were doing a lot of reversals and conversions in the equity pits. And that's what I was doing with Herb Norman when I worked for Norman and Company. And we would, and, but his people, Stavros Giokas with ZUS and AT&T, taught me a lot of it and other people and you just learned it that way mm-hmm. and from people on the floor and then i would add the people around me you know john stafford for one i learned a lot from john and really appreciated it as i go through life yeah he was a pretty a pretty amazing guy he, he was he was a good soul he was really smart uh 
you know, I, I remember when I was clerking for him, he he wasn't his P and L was just going. I think he's going through a divorce or something, and you get distracted, yeah. and the kids are giving you a hard time. And he would fly in from Boston, I think, on Monday through Friday, and then go back home Friday night. But you know, once he figured it out, it was game over. I mean, he just started cranking out money. You know, he he did really well, and then eventually created Stafford and Company, which turned into Ronan Capital, which he sold, I think, to TD Ameritrade or something for. It's not TD, I don't think, but he sold Ronan for a good amount. And actually, Ronan he got in some issues recently mm-hmm. with, um, I've got what blew up on them. But the other person there was um, Blair Hall. Right, right. And Blair created a huge company, which he sold to Goldman Sachs. Yeah. I remember Blair Hall being uh, in the missile pit, like on the crash of 87, and just yeah. basically but bought course, the low because <laughs> it couldn't exactly, go any lower. Low. Yeah, Blair sat there during the crash. Just writing tickets and writing tickets while the rest of us were panicked. And then, of course, Blair went out to run for Senate. And if he didn't lose to Obama, history would have been a lot different. Right. <laughs> wow. That's pretty amazing. So what would you say? Well, let's just talk about your um, maybe some of your greatest struggles or your greatest victories, like whatever you want to talk about. But like what when you think of the trading floor, what do you you know, what were some high spots in, in your career or either personally or professionally? But I would say. The first high spot, I'm going to write one down here also so I don't forget it, but self, um, was the, the people I worked with. Years later, I remember the day when we lost $20,000 in about five seconds because I had bought puts and my clerk had misadded for me and came to me and said, hey, by the way, I misadded. My clerk went on and people who know me will know who my clerk was, I won't say, but he went on to become famous. And he made a mistake. I never yelled at him. He never made the same mistake again. He was a great clerk. Mm-hmm. Best clerk I could ever imagine. But um, it was the people I worked with, literally. I mean, and again, with names like, and I'm still good friends with them, John Walcott, who was 3i from Smith yeah, Barney. Triple I, uh-huh. Triple I. And I did baseball rotisserie, rotisserie baseball with John Walcott. And uh, Craig Johnson from Kidder Peabody. Mm-hmm. And Ron Bailey, who was another market maker and cleared through SOC. He was GHB, G. Heilman Brewery. Because he <laughs> liked um, <laughs> old style. Uh-huh. And... You know, John Downey, who passed away last year, D.O.W., and just so many of those other guys and women, and there were not that many women, but who were just wonderful, wonderful people who I got to spend six or seven hours with every day for six or seven, more than that, for 10 years plus. And I'm thankful for the time I got to spend with them and the laughter and the fun that we had. And we all watched for each other, too. Yeah. and helped each other out when people needed it. John Downey, I would point out especially, there were people who, you know, when he passed away about how he took $1,000 for a down payment for the house. And John walked him over to Harris Bank next door at the Board of Trade, wrote a check, got him $100,000, said, here, pay me back when you have money. And he was that kind of person. There were yeah. so many people like that. that yeah. Th- you're just thankful that they were part of my life. It's very sad in a way that, you know, the floor traders, like my experience with traders is exactly like that. You know, Dan Asher, John LaRock, Steve Tuman, yeah. Irv Kessler, like amazingly generous people. But we, our reputation comes from TV shows, like, I mean, movies like Wall Street, right, with yeah. DiCaprio and all this crazy stuff, Wolf of Wall Street. Like, it's just so not fair because most of the people were really just good, upstanding, outstanding people that... That, you know, the, the retail or most people don't know that you have to have a good reputation. Otherwise, no one will trade with you. 
Nobody yeah. will trade with you. If you're labeled a scumbag or someone that backs out of your trades, you're, you're not, no one's trading with you. Honor was the first thing, even after the stock market crash, yeah. when people were out and were, I had no out trades, but there were people at out trades that were going to cost them a hundred thousand dollars at least. And they honored that out trade. Yeah. And because honor was what everything was the, the final law. You had to keep it, right? You had to maintain it and you had to respect it. Well, I remember again when I, this is like reminiscing about the old days, is when I was working for John Stafford, John Downey came up all the time and hung out in the office. And Stafford used to say that John Downey, it was the house that Teenies built. John yeah. would buy and sell just for Teenies, which was the most, the minimum increment of trade, worth $6.25. He would buy something for a dollar and sell it for a dollar and a sixteenth. But he did it so many times a day, he was able to buy a seat and buy a beautiful house. And John Downey taught me how to say hello, how are you in Japanese, because apparently yes, he, yes. Konnichiwa, right? Genkideska. Like I, I still remember this from like 1983, right? So yeah. John Downey taught me how to speak Japanese because the Downey son, <laughs> <laughs> because he uh, was. I don't think he was a POW guy, but he learned Japanese during World War II because he had to deal with. I forget exactly that that story, but. But then he became a consultant to one of the Japanese, to Tokyo Stock Exchange, when they were trying to open up options. Yeah. So he relearned it, relearned it then, and spent a lot of time in Japanese. And yeah, we used Downey-san, we used to tease John <laughs> all the time. So he'd stand there with his arm out. And there was one other trader who I'll leave nameless, we thought was the cutest woman in the world. And we would come up to him and whisper in his ear and touch his hand so he would think it's her. Uh -huh. and, <laughs> of course, it was one of us idiot guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of practical jokes down there. You know, painting their ear receiver with a black sharpie or dropping you know packets of ketchup. There was all day long. It was like sophomore games, except when things became busy, it was like all all business, like no more joking around. You used to sell, try you, know, you throw your trading cards and see if you could hit the balcony on the floor above us where we had visitors, the visitors deck, mm -hmm. which is only like fifty feet away. But I remember people would just keep throwing them, trying to hit them. And then we did have games we played all the time. Mm -hmm. We had one that's not named after me called the Larry game, which was initials. And or there was an initial game and there was a Larry game where you had a, a grid five by five and you had a grid five by five. And then you would number them one to 25 and I'd say 25A. And then I would use that to spell out a word and you would have to put A in 25. It's kind of like a version of Battleship. Wow, that's semi-intellectual. <laughs> that sounds like a great that. game should be converted into an app that you could make uh, money with. Um, a friend of mine has built it as an app. <laughs> and actually, um, I invested in that app as has my former clerk. And someday, it hopefully will be there. It began on World War II troop ships. Wow. And Larry Gellis, who traded in Kodak, is the one who brought it to the floor. How about that? And hence the Larry game. And, but we had games like that. Well, there were a lot of things, that, you know, because it was 1985 that, you know, we can't really talk about in 2022, mm -hmm. but that did go on. There's a lot of talk about baseball, football, hockey, basketball. I mean, that was most of our day. It was talking about sports. Yeah. Well, not being a sports guy, I mean, I've never read a sports page. I've never, like, I don't even know who is in the Super Bowl, like, the day before. I just go for the food. All right? I'm Italian. I'm a foodie, right? So that's, that's yeah, my thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so go ahead. It was fun, and the people were great. And you know, the other thing, by the way, go back to one of your questions. One of the other things I learned from that, which is very important, is how important you are. And I approach issues, and my friends will tell you this, 
I'll dive in. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong and say, okay, write it off. You're done. Move on to the next thing. I won't sit there and remember it forever. I'll take the lesson I learned and remember that. That comes from the floor where you have a split second to make a decision. Someone's at three and a quarter. You have to decide whether you're an eighth bid, three and an eighth bid. Mm-hmm. You don't have time to sit there and look at everything most of the time. And then half the time you're going to be wrong. Yeah. And you have to figure that out. And then you played politics in a different way. It wasn't like an office where you have to, you know, play with your superiors. Here, you just have to be the best you could possibly be. You have to be first on the trade and you have to get along with the floor broker who's going to make that trade. Right. Otherwise, you're never going to win. And there were great guys who were you know, good floor brokers and, you know, you tried, but it was those things were really important and those have helped me out throughout a career and probably hurt other people who work around me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember two things uh, that that remind me of something you said is one is uh, Dan Asher, who backed me in 1982, said, yeah, it's more important to be first than it is to be right. Right. Yeah. First speed first, then be right. Then the, the second piece of advice was make the trade, manage the risk. So uh, I've got the sun starting to creep around the corner here. So I'm going to just duck down a little bit, but playing playing hide and seek here with the it's sun. It's like you're at center up at, on the pitcher's mound at Wrigley Field when the sun comes over. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So do you? So you left the floor in '91 or '92? I left formally finally in '94. I had stopped trading on the floor. I went to a badge to a clerk's badge after that. Mm-hmm. So we traded off the floor. And I would guess that was in 92 or 93. Sorry, let me turn that off. That's right. That is my niece. She has that ringtone. So oh, good. That's cute. Yeah. So that way I know. Um, but no, I left it in the early 90s. Um, I had gone back after, you know, after the crash in 88. I traded through 88. I finished my college class requirements at that point. And I had the rocket science idea that since we probably waste our youth and I probably wasted mine, I shouldn't waste all my retirement. <laughs> so I got on a plane and I went around the world. Wow. And Tell me a little bit about I, that. Oh, it was, I could say it was the most spectacular trip ever. I would rate it as the second most spectacular trip ever that I took. But um, I started with three friends who just graduated law school. And they were taking that post post bar exam trip and we flew to Thailand and we went through Thailand and Malaysia uh-huh. and we stopped in Japan. We went to Hong Kong and then I went to China with one of the other guys. What year was this? And 1988. Oh my gosh. It was still. It like was still rice fields. It was the only Western store restaurant in Beijing was Kentucky fried chicken. <laughs> <laughs> But That's boy, a, was it good. <laughs> right. You sure and it was I chicken? The, yeah. It was chicken. Well, no, it could have been anything else, to be honest. <laughs> but I'm guessing it was chicken. I went from there through, I was going to take the Trans-Siberian and go to Moscow. And I erred and did not get the right visa. I got pulled off the train in Mongolia. <laughs> I spent a night in the army camp in Mongolia which was a blast. Right. The guy and I, um, I had, I had um, literally a, a um, Russian um, dictionary so uh-huh. I could translate. And he knew a little bit of French and I knew some French. And I had a, a electric handheld backgammon board. 
and he and I played backgammon all night. The next day, they didn't know what to do with me, to be honest. They mm-hmm. had me. I helped them make the signs for the souvenir stand. We played <laughs> basketball. They took me finally on a horse, which is funny given the rest of my life, because I have been on horses in Mongolia now. And they put me on a train back to China. And then I flew from Beijing after enough troubles and tribulations there to Moscow. I was in Moscow in what was called Kiev. Mm-hmm. And it's a sad day, week for Kiev this week. And I was in St. Petersburg, then Leningrad. And then I went out to Budapest and went to Western Europe for a long time. Came back here, went to Colorado, skied, um, and moved from there on. And I eventually got my, M- my BA and then my MBA with the money from the crash. And um, That's so cool. You know, if, so if cool. we have more stories like this, there would never be any wars, right? Because you just see people in such an authentic way. See people in a third way who are just wonderful to meet everywhere you go. I mean, I still talk with a couple of people from Australia and South Africa who literally I met at a hotel or on a train somewhere there. And then, and that was 1988. And people in 1989, because I went back to France to study the language, mm-hmm. and we're having a party in, um, in Rioja um later this year uh-huh. of a bunch of us who studied there they're just the greatest people and thanks to zoom um we have been in communication and visual communication again that's so, terrific i i was inspired is. by a the nobel peace prize winner richard Feynman, who always had this uh quest for curiosity and he visited the center of mongolia in a town called kazil and from kazil come these uh, throat singers that can uh, yes. emit two or three sounds, kind of whistling and growling, and uh, it's it's a you know a very interesting cultural phenomenon. But I took two semesters of Russian because right oh, after cool. the after the communist you know communism fell, I approached the Mongolian consulate to teach a derivatives course there. That was going to be like my and it never oh, went cool. through. They they sent me a rejection letter, but you know to be able to go into that part of the the world at that time was still incredibly new and fresh and not anything like what today's generation can possibly see if they go to china or russia or russia, any place. did you get to russia no that? no never did I, I gave up it just seemed to be an insurmountable bureaucratic problem to get there at that time oh it was i had a travel agent who had the patience to deal with interest at that time and it was a spectacular trip and um, I was telling stories about it today as we talk about Russia and Ukraine. And Mongolia, I did get back to actually. And some years ago, four friends and I decided we were gonna become Mongolian warriors. So we went back for eight days of horseback riding, shooting bows and arrows yes, from the back what, of a horse. That's what these tube and throw singers did. They were all herdsmen and lived in yurts. They, we stayed in a yurt, which is a gear. Yeah. We sword fought on horses. We learned how to make, you know, sheep and lambs bladders or the other way around. I don't even remember which. It was the single most spectacular trip I could ever imagine. The five of us just, if you catch any of us, we will all have the same look in our eyes as we describe it and tell the same stories because who would expect it? And you know what it came from? You know, it just whatever it came from, it was a great idea. And I'm happy that I got to go the first time, and I'm happy I got to go again. That's great. 
that, that's so what do you what do you when you reminisce about the trading floor or those days do you like what what kind of pops in your mind do you still stay in touch with people from the cboe do you like what like i miss it terribly on some days and other times i'm you know kind of agnostic about it but it was really just an amazing part of history and so glad to play even just a small part in, in that it's fine i think it's an amazing part of history i still speak with a lot of people Part of it's thanks to overheard at the CBOE and the other site that's on the CBOE on Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, we did have a small get together last summer in front of the horse. Okay. Um, I just put up on overheard at the CBOE. <laughs> yeah, we got like 20 or 30 people to come out. And then people get three eyed John Walcott, um, of all people, because he, he and I were friends in college, Tom Ricketts, who trade on the CBOE for a while before he owned the baseball team. And um, a lot of friends of his and mine from the time we were on the floor. Uh, Benny Gambino was my partner. You know, Chris Moog was my partner. Jeff Malgard was my partner and my frat brother. And um, so there's a whole batch of them. And as I said, going forward, it's the people. There's many who I don't see mm -hmm. who I would love to see. John O'Connor was a floor official. J-O was his acronym. Yeah. He, last time I saw him, he was working at the uh, Secretary of State's office. He had already been retired and was looking for something to do to keep himself busy. And he was like, I, I renewed my driver's license, and it was J-O was behind the oh, counter. Cool. I'm like, oh, my. He's like a manager there. Like, he runs the whole place. But, you know, like, these guys retired, and, you know, the trading floor disappeared. And a lot of people had a very difficult transition going from yeah. in-person to screen-based training. It was it was almost an impossible endeavor because so much of what we did was being there in person, you feel the sphere, you feel the greed, you're a long or short gamma trader and you're just, it's just it's just not a screen. It's, I, it's I don't know how to same. describe it. It's, it's not the same. I feel bad actually. That's one of the things when I look at, I'm glad I'm not trading anymore. I'm glad I don't have to wake up and worry about what my P&L was. I'm glad I have an income at this point. Right. I miss the challenge. I miss the people. And I, especially with the demise of exchanges, the board of trade shut the last floor down, what, in December or so? Mm -hmm. Right. And a lot of those people didn't have college degrees. They certainly didn't have MBAs. Right. They certainly weren't going to be able to go work for Goldman Sachs in a room in New York making, you know, 500000 a year. They were really smart guys who came out of Chicago public schools who then had a hard time. They wasn't even trading upstairs. They couldn't get jobs. Yeah. And they ended up like, you know, John obviously has said, ended up at the state, you know, at the um, state's um, sector state's office. A couple of my friends ended up working for TSA. And I ran into them walking through airport security at O'Hare. It's like, <laughs> hey, Zoe, what are you doing here? <laughs> right. Oh, and my God. You get, you get people like that. And a few stuck it out and a few stayed on the floor and in trading. And some succeeded greatly at it, but so many of them were just great guys who could never get a job like yeah. that again. And, you know, but they were smart as a whip yeah. and could trade great on a floor. Right. It just, that job doesn't exist anymore. No, it's, it's so sad that, you know, entry level positions in financial services like that don't exist, but you're right. Larry, if we had an opportunity to hire somebody with an associate degree or a bachelor's degree, we always took the associate degree because someone with a bachelor's in, uh, in, in finance, you know, MBA, they, you couldn't teach them. They knew it all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You want to hire the... Yeah. Yeah. Good. You know, I still did. I was working for UBS, Union Bank of Switzerland years and years ago. 
And we had stacks of resumes and three or four of us were going over them. And it was a stack like this. And one person picked other people who played football at Harvard. Another person played, picked people who went to Wharton because he did. And I picked people who had worked at McDonald's or Burger King or some job like that to get through college because it said, and not a fancy school. I wanted people from any school that was not Ivy League or my own alma mater, right. Chicago. And those were the best people. I agree. They were smart. They worked hard. They weren't spoiled. You could teach some things. There was always gratitude. They they were grateful for the opportunity and they were loyal like dogs. I mean, they just. Yeah, they were loyal. They were happy. You know, think about in 1988 or 1990, some of these people were making $100,000 or $200,000 a year. That's like making four or 500,000 before this year with inflation. Right. It's a lot of money, you know. And they were able to, you know, we're all 27, 28 years old. Yeah, they were able to spoil, waste a lot of money. But some of them went out and bought real estate or houses right. or, you know, even stock in Apple or something, you know, yeah. <laughs> where they made their own lives. But it was just an incredible opportunity because, as I said, I clerked for Stafford. He introduced me to Dan Asher, who, I mean, he didn't even really know me. I was 21 years old, 22, and he, yeah. he lent me 20 grand to buy a Midwest seat. And he Wasn't didn't know cool? who I was. That's like 250 grand today to like a 21-year-old kid. Like, who does that? Which pit were you in on the MIDI? I was, uh, well, I tried my hand uh, in Northwest Industries, but Mark Hutchinson was way too good for me. He just always killed me. So then I picked up and I left and I went over to Superior Oil, which was trading at about $30 a share. And it was a great place to learn because there was a lot of boxes, butterflies. I kind of came, you know, there were some tax strategies that I didn't understand at the time that was finally... um, uh, diminished by the Reform Act in 80, whatever, 84, 86. But yeah, yeah. it was it was superior oil. It was just, it was so much fun. And uh, I got like learned Teledyne. a lot. Superior was like Teledyne because we had tax spreads in there. Mm-hmm. And um, when I worked for Chris Phillips in Teledyne, the first things, he made his money on tax spreads. Yeah. And for anybody who you know, doesn't know, I mean, basically you could sell a box which had no risk, basically either delta, gamma, or interest rate risk even. And you, know, you would sell it for five, four and 15, 16 and buy it for $5 and take the 16th loss because the first in, first out accounting rules. And that 16th would give you a loss this year and your profit would go on the next year. And because in fact, you would take the loss on December 31st, you would take the option you lost money on, you would then sell it and buy it back, taking a loss, giving you that loss in this fiscal year. It was a great tax strategy. And Chris did that for broke for a lot of people. Um, and there were a lot of market makers who since written books who made money doing the other sides of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it was a phenomenal thing to do, but it obviously doesn't exist anymore. Right. And it was written off by the tax by Rostenkowski, I think. Rostenkowski, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. A friend. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a friend. A friend. Did you spend any time at the Board of Trade, like trading commodities when things were slow at the SIBO? No, I had a Board of Trade membership, also ZOE. And um, I ended up trading off the floor on the Board of Trade for about a year and also on the Merck. And we traded um, soybean crack, crude oil crush, where we had you know two things, the crack with beans and meal against oil, um, soybeans. And the crude oil crush was crude against um, heating and gasoline. Wow. And in theory, they should be the same price, but they weren't. And I traded those, and I went back to the CBOE. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the Board of Trade. I have a lot of friends who went there. 
And I'm proud of the fact that I actually passed their exam. <laughs> <laughs> right. It was a tough exam. And I remember sitting in this incredibly intimidating room, huge wood paneling. The table was like Pharaoh, like that, like a yeah. mile long. And you had to get interviewed by all the Ms. Uliveri. Why do you want to become a member? Do you think that you have enough honor and integrity to be a member of the Chicago Board of Trade? Have you ever committed to, you know, oh my God, yeah. scary. Yeah. I had a, I have a friend still who years ago when I was on the floor, he was a summer clerking. He wasn't even clerking. He was working for the Board of Trade and he had to write the numbers up in chalk on the side chalk books. Yeah. And that was his job all summer. And for that, he made yeah. like, 500 bucks a month. Yeah. yeah. Well, my, my first job as a runner, I remember bringing an order into the soybean pit and I got hit by a cigar coming out of the corn pit because you could still smoke on the trading floor back in the 80s. And I'm like, wait, sparks are flying all over the place. And I ended up ended up trading with the same broker that actually smoked that cigar, except 10 years later. Uh, Do you remember when he would walk off the floor of the old board of trade building and you couldn't smoke on the floor. So everyone was on the seventh floor Right when you walked off, it was like being in the smoking car of a railroad train. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was just horrible. But people did what they did. And it was a ton of. F oh, I don't you know, know if was... Hold on. I got it. Was... Right, go oh, ahead. No, no, no. I'm no, going to with somebody else. Yeah. It was a ton of fun. It was a ton of. It wasn't stress in the same way. There was certainly stress. But again, you were with your friends. Right. And we had a Christmas party every year for the back of the CBOE for the platform. And we had it in Bridgeport at a rib place, his name I'm about to skip. It's on Halstead, was on Halstead. And um, it was just great. And we'd have 30 guys show up and we'd all have ribs. So none of us could get a taxi cab out of there to get home. So, <laughs> right. But, you know, and then we tell our favorite stories of the year. We tell what stupid thing I did. Or what stupid thing, you know, Randy did or whoever else it was. Mm -hmm. And just laugh about it. And we talk about our best trades and our worst trades. And do you remember when you sold me a hundred calls and a six, you know, and a quarter? Yeah, and they and I shorted them. You bought them from me, and immediately they were a buck, you know. Right. You right. Just, I remember I remember my one of my worst trades was I was doing a dividend play in Northwest Industries. So I did this deep oh. into money, 30, 35 call spread or something. I did it 800 times and my clerk tried to exercise the wrong options and it was for a huge oh, dividend. So I came in the next day and I never exercised my calls to get the dividend. And I had a huge five figure loss, okay? Yeah. And I mean, I'm puking, I'm sick, but the guys at check-in couldn't do anything about it because it was just an error. Now they should have called me to see why I was exercising let's just say March calls instead of February calls. But anyhow, they yeah. didn't, the exercise didn't go through and I'm long 800 downside puts for nothing. Somebody comes in and bids like an eighth of a dollar. I sell them all 800 puts. I'm just going to take my loss and a dividend. And just then after I left to like throw up Northwest industries was about to get bought out by some company and the merger was canceled. And oh, those, puts, those puts I sold for an eighth of a dollar traded like four bucks, like an hour <laughs> after I, I would have made like $320,000 and said I lost like 50 grand on the, on the dividend place. You so, got double hit. You have the double whammy. Oh my God. It's so, yeah. So I caught a bunch of grief for that. And it, it was, if I would have just, if I would have just left for 45 minutes, I would have made six figures instead of losing five. I was back to what I was saying earlier about how we always would kid around about if I just called the Cubs game that day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If I only called him sick. 
I got my first um, cell phone. I still the same cell phone number, believe it or not, from Cellular One. So I could go to the Cubs games and I could call in between innings and find out if anything was happening. So, <laughs> and the phone was as big as a, a oh, it was a brick. It was like yeah. this. Yeah. yeah. But we would take it into Wrigley and we'd sit there between innings. We would call the trading desk and whoever was on the trading desk and say, hey, what's going on with the market? And then place an order if we had to, to cover ourselves. And then go back and enjoy the Cub game. <laughs> oh, yeah. You only had about an hour of battery life, so you couldn't keep the phone right. on. Right. You had to turn it off and turn it back on. <laughs> it's, it's crazy times because just like you took a class at Nutrier, I took one also at Nutrier on options, oh, really? and it was by a guy named Randall Shackner who worked for David Noyce and Company. And while yeah. I was a runner making a minimum wage, which was like $2.50 an hour for Shearson, I would run downstairs into Brokers, which was the restaurant. I would yep. feed, feed the, the, the payphone with quarters, call David Noyes, sell Honeywell put options short, hang up, run back upstairs and be a runner. And then after 1.15, would go back down to the floor of the Board of Trade. And the, the wires for the payphone are still down there, but they're hidden behind a, a, a painting. And yes. I would get my fill from Randall Shackner uh, at, at 1.30. Like, it's just insane. And now, like, we're trading on our phone and using Robinhood and, all, you, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll ask you a question, memory. What's the first thing you remember about Brokers Inn? Well, it, for me, it was the chicken soup and it was the killer fish sandwiches. I'll say it's the killer fish sandwiches for me. This, and, this high, yeah, yeah, this high. And we would go over to actually, I was I've been in series twice this year because series is still the same people, mm -hmm. and they their fish sandwiches aren't this high, but they're at least this high. And it's I've gone in a few times now to just get a fish sandwich. Oh, yeah, deal with the heart idea. attack that's going to come afterwards. <laughs> I'm going to do that. That's going to be on my bucket list. I'm going to put on behind me to go get it, to reminisce and get a big fish sandwich with uh, with extra tartar and, and cheese. With extra tartar and cheese and some fries. And yeah, um, we used to go to brokers and hang out after the close. Back when I worked for Chris Phillips, we would do our our P and L, which is obviously done by hand every day. Mm -hmm. Or since Chris is a floor broker, we would count up and sort the tickets to see how much he'd made doing being a floor broker. Yeah. And I would do my own PL and then we would go down to brokers and I was too young to drink. They didn't care, <laughs> but I was too young to drink. Uh -huh. And we would sit there until I would catch whatever the 630 train home to Glencoe. And um, and brokers was just a great place to hang out. Yeah. You know, people, Rod Hobbs, who's a good friend of mine, who used to clerk for us too. His girlfriend at the time, Paul McGuire's daughter Patty, passed away a few years ago. Mm. And I miss her tremendously. And some of the other guys, Billy Villacres, who used to work on the floor, used to come by. He also passed away, weirdly, the same day as Patty. Wow. And, um, um, you know, I hate saying things. So, you know, it's sad to think about those people, but happy yeah. because they were such wonderful people. Agreed. But we used to go to brokers every day and we would hang out four days a week. And the fifth day, someone might have a date or something, you know? <laughs> It's it's unbelievable to me to think that I actually did eat at that restaurant every day for almost 30 years. It, it's crazy. It is. I had lunch there every day. I mean, I don't know what I ate because it wasn't a fish sandwich except on Fridays. But I did have lunch there every single day. Yeah, I would have. Yeah. I would meet uh, Jack Fahey, his clerk Maureen, oh God, yeah. Mo, me, and a few other people would have this huge breakfast before the trading floor. I mean, the biggest omelets. 
you know, we're really yeah. getting off topic here, but the food was pretty amazing that, back then, and it was oh. more authentically homemade than than what you get today. We also had to bring it back. We used to be able to bring the food on the old floor. We could bring the food into the pits. On the new floor, I think they banned it. But I remember going and buying sandwiches and bringing it up. And then then when the new floor, when they opened up the cafeteria mm-hmm. on the floor above the training floor, on the fifth floor or whatever, and we thought that was the greatest thing ever invented. Yeah. And we would sit there, and I'll bring us totally back. On the day of the stock market crash in 87, those of us who were too scared to stand in the pit for more than a few minutes of time sat up there and watched it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was the most surrealistic, weird. The lights seemed dimmer. The, the It was just a very existential kind of experience for me because it was it but we can we can do another episode on that larry listen man this has been like almost 50 minutes of chatting you see how it goes by so fast um does, is there anything so that you want to close any closing thoughts or uh if you're if you if, feel free to shamelessly self-promote a business or a product or i just <laughs> want to be able to keep this conversation going and, and maybe impose on you again for another chat this was this was great First of all, I'll say thank you so much, Bill. And thank you to everybody who's watching this for actually listening to our reminiscences. And I would be happy to speak more about that. The product right now that I would promote is it's www.freespoke.com. F-R-E-E and then spoke is in, in a wheel. Mm-hmm. And it's a search engine, will be a search engine. And it's got a news aggregator piece. So if you want to see equal sides, left, right, center, about to say Ukraine today mm-hmm. or GDP or whatever, the articles, which is our first use of a search engine, is there. And I'm doing that with friends, and it's a ton of fun um, for us to do. And we'd love it if people want to do it. And I actually didn't expect us to promote it, but I appreciate it. You're welcome. And the last thing I would say is for my friends who watch this, first of all, I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn. Message me if we're not already in touch. because it was an honor and it's a pleasure to think back of the, whatever it was, 1977, 1994, plus a little bit. The time I got to spend with you was just a great time. And I'm honored to know you, to have known you and to have learned from you. So thank you would be my final words. Yeah, our word was our bond and that just doesn't happen today. Uh, It's just, it was a great experience. And thank you so much for joining me. And and this is great. Inter- to meet you for the first time, right? Even though we Thank have you. this Same. shared experience. Let's, when you are going to brought to series, drop me a note and I'll meet you at series for lunch. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Okay. And if you have anybody you. in your own Rolodex or in your own cohort that you think would like to have a conversation like this, you know, please, Larry, give them my name or have them reach out to me because I would love to build up a, a library of the people that really started this whole. I'll whole check thing. with my friends because there's a lot of them around and see. So, and thank you so much. Thanks for overheard at the CBOE. So You're I like welcome. That. Thank you so okay. much, Larry. I'll chat with you later. Okay, talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Oh. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. The information is believed to be factual and up-to-date, but we do not guarantee its accuracy and should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. And answers to questions do not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities, forms of payment, cryptocurrencies, options, or strategies mentioned. It is not intended to be a substitute for specific individuals 
individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine what is suitable for you, consult a professional advisor before implementing any information presented to discuss profit, loss, and risk. Investment advisory services are offered through Seneca Capital Management LLC, a state-registered investment advisor. The firm and investment advisor representatives of Seneca Capital Management only conduct business where they are properly registered. Registration with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any state securities authority does not imply a certain level of skill or training.